last time on Satin Tights, a Wonder Woman podcast. Stanley Ralph Ross, in the second page of his script, he says, he writes a little note to the producers regarding the opening titles. He says, in animation, segueing into live action, the main titles... we read this together? The main titles... Will leave no doubt... In anyone's mind... That they are about to be... Dazzled... By the new... Original... Wonder Wonder Woman. Woman. Honest-to-goodness, exciting, thrilling adventures of Wonder Woman, her friends and foes, in the fascinating and colorful 1940s, when good guys were good guys and bad guys were terrible, and when Wonder Woman was sent to watch over us in a time of peril and assist the triumph of good over evil. We open with a World War II newsreel, one that could very well have played in cinemas at the time. It uses real footage from World War II, and it's not quite full screen, but smaller, a little bit inset, center, showing black and white wartime footage over Charles Fox's steady military march. Paul Fries provides a spot-on 1940s-style news narrator and Roosevelt imitation. Now, the newsreel ends with President Roosevelt declaring that the only hope for freedom and democracy is... As we revealed in part one of this podcast covering the pilot, the starburst and the stars and all that stuff, that's not what viewers saw on November 7th, 1975. Instead of the starburst, the explosion was just another newsreel shot of an explosion, quickly followed by the Wonder Woman title shooting up and superimposing over that black and white footage. Now, this is followed by an animated comic book showing us Wonder Woman's amazing feats until the character literally leaps off the page into live action, becoming Linda Carter as she poses heroically and flashes that unforgettable smile. This is Satin Tights, a Wonder Woman podcast. And with me again is my co host, Ray. Hi, Paul. Hey. Hi, Paul. We're back. <laughs> we're back. <laughs> <laughs> We've covered all the behind the scenes, the production value, and the costumes, and the cast, and the and the art and the animation. Now we get to deep dive into the actual story itself. And if you if you just finished listening to part one, then you'll remember we had a very special guest, Andy Mangles. Wonder Woman authority historian was with us, and he's back again. Andy Mangles. Hey guys, good to see you again, or hear you again, actually, as the case may be. <laughs> Andy, thank you so much for coming back for part two uh, to talk about. Yes, thank you. This, I dare say, the most indelible version of Wonder Woman. Uh, we've got a new Wonder Woman now, and I think she's sensational. Uh, and we had a Wonder Woman before Linda, but I think for all of us. 
Linda, Linda is Wonder Woman, and she will always be Wonder Woman. And uh, this is where it starts, man. This is where uh, they they lay all the track uh, for what comes next. And some of that track they discard uh, and just kick it to the curb as we get closer and deeper into the season one and season two and three and all that stuff. But uh, Ray, you saw this in the '90s. I saw this in the '90s when it premiered on FX. Yeah. You were just a wee little kid. I was just a baby. Only three episodes aired after I was born. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you had never seen the pilot. I'd never seen the pilot, and uh, FX did a big to do about it that they had gotten the rights um, to the pilot, and I was shocked at how different it felt from the rest of the episodes. It was funny. There seemed to be a, Linda was playing Wonder Woman in a little different way, um, and it, it was just really exciting to know that there was this um, this piece of the this show I had watched probably for thirteen fourteen years at that point that I had never seen before. I remember being in my bedroom. <laughs> where my TV was on top of this very tall dresser and just sitting on the floor marveling <laughs> that there was this new old film that I had never seen that was uh, now going to become a part of my consciousness. Right. Now let's talk to the daddy in the room. <laughs> Andy Mangles, <laughs> what do you remember? Can you tell us what you remember when you saw the, the, the tiny square black and white wartime newsreel footage i think in part one we got into a little bit of how but i'll just do a brief recap um we only had a black and white television i made a deal with my parents and our neighbors that i would do extra chores for two weeks and my parents would borrow our neighbor's color television so i could watch a, color television for the first time ever, and B, I could watch Wonder Woman in color for the first time ever. So seeing Wonder Woman start out in black and white really kind of like shocked my young mind, and and I didn't understand the newsreel part of it. I thought that was an actual, like they had filmed it for the TV show. And when that, when that music blared on, and then it goes directly into artwork that resembles the comic books of the time. You know, I, ha I hadn't seen Linda Carter as Wonder Woman at that point. So immediately it's, it's all like, oh, this looks like the comic books. But it was a precursor to seeing Linda Carter walk out of the comic book. Right. Was that was the first time you had seen her in the Wonder Woman costume? No promo images or anything. Yeah, they 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 weren't really doing a lot of promotional stuff beforehand, because remember, uh, as much as we look back and revere this as a series, this was a special. They hadn't contracted to do any more episodes at that point. They didn't know if it was going to work or if it was going to get the ratings or anything else like that. So as far as they knew, this was a, a one and done. So they did promotions. There was an ad that ran in TV Guide, but I hadn't seen it yet. So let me ask you this. For all intents and purposes, you're watching what appears to be a, a cartoon, of a comic book. Right. And she's she's flying through windows and she's swooping through the air. And then it cuts to her tied to the post and she breaks free and she's still a cartoon. And now she's coming towards you. And for the very first time, this cartoon leaps and morphs into flesh and blood Linda Carter. What 
What did you think? It was uh, it was frankly astonishing, and and you you look back on it now, and of course we understand with our sophisticated minds knowing about animation and knowing about rotoscoping and and all these things that we know about how they produce movies and special effects as adults make it just a little less special than what it was at the time. But if you think about this from a perspective of a 10-year-old kid who's watching this on television for the first time in 1975, and you go, wait a minute, did the cartoon just turn into a woman who looks exactly like the cartoon? And it reinforced that element, and this is exactly why they did it that way, it reinforced the element that Unlike the Kathy Lee Crosby version that had been on the air a year before, they were reinforcing for the audience the idea that Linda Carter walked out of the comic book. And that was that was their intent with that scene. You know, so it was it was an astonishing thing to do. And they actually traced photos of her and then work their way backwards from those photos. So even while she's on screen, I have artwork of her uh, that they traced like about 10 or 15 frames where it's already turned into Linda Carter, but they weren't sure at what point she was going to turn from artwork into Linda. So they so they did about 10 or 15 more frames oh, cool. just to make sure that they had coverage of, you know, when they'd want to cut. In watching this um, again to prepare for this on the Blu-ray, I was struck by how the uh, comedy was hitting in a different way uh, now that we have a clearer picture. And there were little subtle things, little details in the background that I was able to notice through this viewing um, that I'm sure we'll talk about later that um, made it a very different viewing experience than I've ever had before with this pilot. Really? And that, and you owe that yeah. to its visual representation? I, yeah. Think, things hit different or they, they hit for the first time? They hit for the first time. They were hitting differently. I, I rarely laughed out loud during this thing. And I found myself laughing out loud at a lot of the jokes, even stuff that Steve Trevor was doing. It was very different. You know, it's funny because... Um, when when they show Cloris Leachman and Fanny Flagg uh, up on that sort of uh, you know that dais, thank you. I, I knew that there were people behind them in the foreground, but boy, if the Blu-ray doesn't make these people pop, and you're like, wait, is is that a, is, is that a, is that a woman? Oh my god, it is. There there are people having conversations. Yeah, behind yeah. Cloris Leachman and Fanny Flagg during this whole scene, and they pop now. Uh, whereas they, they, you knew they were there, but they were, you know, they were not there really they were in the background. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. we will talk about the Blu-ray, uh, because I think it's a, a, a wonderful, uh, thing that, uh, the show is now out, uh, in HD. I, I've got, you know, uh, nitpicky problems with it. Uh, some of the, uh, the, the color correction is a little bit wonky, especially, uh, in, in the, in the, uh, earlier, uh, episodes and stuff. Because I'm a purist, I do love the fact that they uh, maintained its um, four by three aspect ratio, and that's great. And uh, what I absolutely love is the the cleanup, you know, uh, debris and tears and uh, edge artifacting. One thing I I felt that they went too far with was the DNR, which is uh, the digital noise removal, and 
so much so that some, uh, a lot of imagery looks really soft and almost plastic looking and there's some detail that's lost. And so I, I commend them on the cleanup, but uh, the DNR filter, it, it didn't work so well. And we'll, and we'll talk about that as we go on with the podcast and see what episodes held up and, and, and what episodes didn't. Now, uh, uh, to finish up about the, the main title, uh, uh, in this uh, first pilot and the next two specials, um, and as Andy said, they were, they were specials. In fact, as we'll find out, the whole season one, uh, in retrospect, we call it a season one, but they were really just specials. They were always regarded as specials by ABC because they could yeah. pick and choose where they wanted to drop them. And uh, for a time, they would, they would enjoy mostly a Saturday night uh, prime time, eight o'clock spot. But uh, man, that could change in a heartbeat. And I remember as a kid, you know, when, when Wonder Woman wasn't coming on after Lawrence Welk, I was so upset, but you know, um, that's, that's just, you know, it, it, I watched Lawrence Welk and there's no Wonder Woman after. Thank you. Thank you. Now, uh, it, it Wonder Woman is coming up next. Uh, but anyway, um, Ray, you told uh, me that you never have to watch this pilot again because you <laughs> have watched it to death. It has been watched. <laughs> Another thing that you said, and I want you to explain, because we're going to get into this part of it. You called part of the uh, the singing part, you said there was a warbly uh, part in the theme song. Wonder Woman! That, uh... <laughs> it, all, it always just grated at my ears. Wonder Woman! Why are right, they not right, fixing right. this? It's correct in <laughs> Fausta. Wonder Woman. Why haven't they fixed this on every other episode? Once Linda did her little smile and it says Linda Carter, and then I'm like, oh God, all right, there's Lyle Wagner. Okay. Oh God, now we have all the guest stars. Wonder just get. And then you were done. Just get to the episode. You were done. Let's just start the story. <laughs> when you listen to Fausta, actually, if you have the DVDs and you listen to the end credits of Baroness, it's also there as well. It's a different version of the song. And, it, and it's, uh, it's what's called a double tracking or a double vocal. And what that means is that the artist either sang the vocal again to his own track or they mixed a double vocal into the same song. And what happens is uh, when you're doing the mix down, you're getting a different mix. It's the same music, it's the same vocals, but in the mix, they're putting up uh, maybe the mid harmonies are higher or the high harmonies are higher. And if you listen to about around 58 seconds, which is the point where Ray doesn't enjoy it. Yeah, they decided to make the warbles higher. Wonder Woman! And uh, <laughs> interestingly, if you go back to the uh, Columbia House VHS, that double vocal version is also on the opening of Baroness. Yes, it is. Let's get this out of the way. The, the theme song's official name, uh, this might blow your mind, uh, is actually The Wonder Woman, as in The Batman. Uh, the, the song itself was recorded on April 21st, 1970. And if you own the La La Land three disc collection, wow, that, it is that er, that much time before. Oh yeah, wow, oh yeah. Okay, it is a fantastic collection, and there is a fantastic forward by none other who Andy Mangles, Andy Mangles. gives a fantastic forward. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> um, now uh, 
again, we'll be talking with the lead male vocalist, John Baylor, and um, we're going to find out what it was like for him to sing this song. We're going to talk about his career. You know, you might have heard John Baylor's voice on Love American Style. Love American Style, truer than the red, white, and blue. The three ladies that were backing up John Baylor uh, were Marty McCall, Carolyn Willis, and Julia Waters. But he was the lead singer on Wonder Woman uh, season one, season two. And then we'll get into it when in the middle of season two, they got rid of his vocals and they just went with a synthesizer. And uh, that wasn't fun until Johnny Harris comes along in the third season and gets rid of the female chorus and brings John back to sing the male chorus. I have never noticed that. So the tables turn for him. I never realized it went from the female chorus to him. So let's finally, now that we've covered the main title of this song, of this animated opening, we're going to get into the show itself. We get that first shot. We're in Germany. Establishing shots are always done and still done today on television series where they'll show the outside of a building so you know that you're at a warehouse or you know you're in the slums or you know you're in Washington, D.C. or whatever. The abandoned glass factory. Right, right, right. So they the, <laughs> so they will always do an establishing shot, but Wonder Woman and specifically, you know, beginning here, they did these bright yellow caption boxes and part of the reason for that was because if people were watching in black and white the bright yellow would read as not quite white which would uh kind of burst out of the screen a little too much but it would read kind of as a light gray color or something like that but if you're watching it in color it just pops out at you the the caption box so you immediately it brands where it is and it also is done in a comic book style it's all capital letters um which is what how comic books were lettered and it's done in the same frame style as a comic book has been done since the the 1940s so this was a, a an important element that they took from the comics that that a lot of people don't even think of because they're just like, oh, yeah, of course, there's a caption box telling me where I am. But this was, in my memory, was the first time that I'd ever seen it on television, that we were seeing a comic book caption box that was identifying the location in a comic book show. Did it make you feel like uh, this was connecting you to your comics? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, uh, you know, kind of, there's a certain, uh, for, for people who are fans of pop culture, there are, there are a lot of triggers depending on where you've, where you've come up or where you've, uh, what you watched as a kid, what you watch as an adult, etc. And, uh, you know, if if somebody says the the word "meanwhile," you know, every everybody at a certain age is going to go at the Hall of Justice uh, because that we've been 
trained by watching hundreds and hundreds of, of episodes and reruns of Super Friends that, meanwhile, is always followed by at the Hall of Justice. Um, seeing this caption box that, to that time, had only been used in comic books uh, and seeing it appear with comic book lettering and the whole bit, it absolutely just made me think, comic book! And it completely reinforced that, not just for me as a comic book fan, but I think for all aspects of the audience. I started watching this show before I read comics, so for me it did not have that uh, kind of impact that I was like, oh, this is a comic book. I think when I read comic books, I was like, oh, now I understand why they're doing this on Wonder Woman. Um, reverse, but I wanted for you. Okay. it was it was a total reverse experience. Uh, in the script, I have that box. The text is different. In my version, it says Rocket Base, Pina Mund, P E E N A M U N D E, Germany, nineteen forty two, and it describes uh, Colonel v uh, Victor von Blasco, mid forties, tall, imperial, imperially slim in his uh, Luftwaffe uniform, is seated at his large desk. Blasco is listening to music and drinking a glass of fine wine. The office is decorated with ubiquitous swastika flag behind Blasco's desk and a large photo of Hitler over the oak sideboard. So it was a totally different opening. Yeah. They really simplified it with this globe and just putting the hand on it as we go along through uh through this episode you're going to get tidbits of what was in the script uh versus what made it on on screen and uh, we're going to do that along the way as we go through this um and then as our podcast continues um that's going to be a little bit uh, that's going to be a segment of its own we're going to lock andy away in his vault <laughs> and uh for each episode we're going to open it up and we're going to find out uh, what uh, what tidbits he has about the script and about any behind the scenes information. Uh, but for for right now, we're we're going to bring you that stuff sort of a, as a running uh, live commentary. Um, and it also goes to show you of how uh, when you get on a set and you're running up against the clock, and your director says, "You know what? Uh, that all was great. We don't have time to shoot it. How can we convey all of this?" Uh, uh, how can we convey his character and, and, and uh, what, what is Von Blasco all about? Uh, certainly what Leonard Horn did, Ray got it. You know, this villain has his hand on the, on the world. Yeah. Hitler. Hitler. Map Norris. Speak English, if you don't mind, Herr Capitan, for secrecy's sake. And the off chance that someone might be listening and learn the secret of your mission. Act one, scene one, this is Von Blasco sends Drangle on his mission. But uh, Victor Newman, played by Eric Braden, he uh, plays Drangle, who uh, his assignment is to fly to America and uh, bomb a uh, manufacturing facility that's uh, working on uh, a new uh, bomb site. That's the, the crux of this mission. And Von Blasco, this scene is all about him telling him where he's got to go, the, the, the deception that's involved. So, you're excited, yeah? Mm -hmm. Herr Oberst, I'm always excited when performing for the greater glory of the Fatherland. Of course. <coughs> Café, Herr Oberst? Yeah. Zwei Tasse Café mit Zucker, Nicolas. What is happening throughout this uh, scene also that's, that's uh, somewhat comical? There are a bunch of notes, Ray, 
that you shared with me. The first, because this is the first time I've heard it, and, and this is the first time I've, I've realized it. And I don't know if I realize it, because I don't know if I agree with it, but I love it. You say that there is some sexual <laughs> tension between Von Blasco and Nicolas. Maybe it's just what I need to keep myself interested. Uh <laughs> In their relationship. No, I I do feel that they are playing some sort of... uh, It's an odd relationship, obviously. Uh, Nicholas is a spy that we'll we'll find out soon enough. Right. Um, But yeah, I do feel that they're playing a bit of sexual tension here uh, that was not in the script. Right. They've right. added they've added a different layer to it whereas in the script it read more like um Nicholas is just trying to keep his spy his spying secret. Right. But here he's playing it on a totally different level of attachment to um Bon Bosco. And you also say that Henry Gibson's comedy uh, is that he's like an interfering wife from the 50s. From a 50s sitcom with getting in front of the slide projector, bringing in the coffee. <laughs> you know, he's playing He's playing this traditionally, what we would traditionally see as a, a, a more feminine, subservient role uh, throughout this pilot. And he, I, I think he's playing it up a little bit. Well, I, you know, it's there's a question mark for me whether that's, whether that's Henry Gibson, uh, whether whether we read it that way because it's Henry Gibson, or whether we read it that way because it was intended by the actors, and I, I absolutely agree with you that there's there's a weird uh, tension and p- perhaps romantic or sexual tension between the two of them. That's absolutely there, but but I don't know whether that's a you know, if if the parts had been reversed and and Eric Braden had been playing the Nicholas role, would that have would that have seemed as as uh, romantic as it is with Henry Gibson? Yeah, it would have it would have brought well whatever his interpretation of the role was. Right, right. Yeah, so I, I think that's one of the the beauties of having a comedic actor who will um, look for that sort of thing to play with while they're performing. Yeah. I I think if you spend the the entire every scene he's in if you spend the entire time just watching Henry Gibson you get a whole different uh <laughs> movie and TV show than than everything else because he he is so um, he's a nut. He's a nutcase. Uh, yeah, he's so in his own world. A beautiful nutcase. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's in his own world. He's in his own TV show. He's wonderful. In, yeah. In Henry Gibson's mind, that show is about him. Yeah. And Cloris Leachman too. Right, right. 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 Yeah. That's why they're. That's why they're such comedic geniuses. They're not afraid of it. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful to watch. I have to say, I didn't get it. I think I still subscribe to the the subservient, awkward, bungling, crazy like a fox uh, spy. That he has to he has to be this sort of bewildered uh, servant to Von Blasco in order to get away with what he's doing. Uh, always on the verge of being discovered. I mean, they play. I believe that they play it so wonderfully. Where you know, at any moment. You know, uh, you know. Later on, the scene where he comes around and, and and puts his hands on his shoulders, and yes, I I see it there. Yes, yeah. But it's just sort of like, is he going to strangle him, 
or is he going to give him a, a massage? You don't. You just don't know. And I, I, I love that. It's playing up to this authoritarian need of worship. <laughs> right, right. Of ego stroking. And that's, that's what he's repetitively doing throughout when uh, Von Blasco is lording over him. Uh, he, he's just, he just keeps feeding that, that, that ego, that narcissistic ego. Rangel, you will find the complete maps for your route and your bomber. But here, as your goal. The Brooklyn Navy Yard. I love the comedy bit. Uh, in the original script, a wall splits and pulls apart to reveal uh, the map. And uh, if they had done that on film, you would not have gotten the comedy bits in business of uh, Henry Gibson getting in the way of the projector light. Yeah. I crack up at that every time. Destroy the Swan factory, and it will put them behind at least a year in their war effort. At the same time that you're bombing the Brooklyn Navy Yard, one of our agents in Washington will be stealing the only duplicate set of plans for the bombsite, thus completely destroying their production capability. Of course, your timing must be flawless. Ray, you also talk about the vibrancy of this uh, set on the Blu-ray. Yes, this is, this is one of those situations where I was able to see more detail. Uh, more color popping, the scene just felt a little more alive. And especially when uh, we get to the chicken coop at the end of the scene, I could see the chicken coop. Before that, to me, it just felt like a, a, a black screen, an occasion, or the, the pigeon coop. Why did I say chicken? Why did I write chicken? Did you write? I know. <laughs> 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 I, was, I was thinking of my sister's chicken coops. But yeah, yeah. Suddenly, I could see all these details, and I'm like, I, I was able to understand a little more what was happening. Whereas I remember on the first viewing, I was like, "What is he doing? This screen is all black, and I can't, I can't see the birds." Right, right. Um, the chickens. Yeah. So now, now we can, the birds. Right. Now we can the you, chickens. You yes. thought it was so dark. You thought they were chickens. The Nazis homing chickens. <laughs> now in the Blu-ray, you can actually tell that the pigeons are male. <laughs> pigeons. Right, and they're fake. You can actually tell that they're fake pigeons too. Uh, the first scene where Henry Gibson comes down the stairs, uh, there's that shot, close-up shot of Von Blasco and a fully in-focus shot of Henry Gibson who's in the foreground. And what Leonard Horn is using here now is a split uh, diopter lens, which you achieve a fake deep focus. Um, and you, the way you can tell that is it gets a little bit blurry in the center of the in center of the screen. But I, uh, you, but the reason why he used that uh, split focus is because the set is so gorgeous. Horn wanted to get get it for all it's worth. Right, you you only have a little time on this set. He wanted to capture in in full detail. Um, I I will say that uh, this is a is a very short scene that basically Von Blasco sends Drangle uh, out to do his mission. I had hoped to undertake this mission myself, but unfortunately, Zafir wishes me to be right here by his side. If you fail, I will not overst. Then I will have no other choice but to complete your mission myself. Successfully. I shall not fail us. Well, as our English friends would say, good hunting. Hmm? And Heil Hitler. Heil Hitler! And we get these wonderful, again, these sort of, these black and white news footage of his plane taking off and going into the air. And, and we're going to see more black and white during the dogfight 
in the Bermuda Triangle. And this is the first time we sort of get the mixture of where they just drop in these black and white film pieces. And we're not going to see it again until Wonder Woman in Hollywood, where it's, it's almost a nice bookend oh, yeah. to season one, where when Drusilla goes to Hollywood, we get all these sort of, uh, you know, old time black and white images of what Hollywood used to be back then. I wish there were more, to tell you the truth. I wish during season one had more black and white shots in there just to really make it I mean, it was unique already, but just to sort of, I don't know if that would might take people out of it or be something of a characteristic, but I wish, I, I, I do wish there were more of that stuff. Well, you should have come to my house as a kid because I, I never got to see Wonder Woman again in color until <laughs> no! I was an adult. No, oh, Andy, so it was all like black and white Wonder Woman. You only get our TV for this one time. You couldn't do more chores? You couldn't like- <laughs> All the chores in the world wouldn't have gotten a color TV. Wonder Woman will continue in a moment. As Aphrodite, wise as Athena, stronger than Hercules, swifter than Mercury. Explore the 75-year history of the Amazon princess with Wonder Woman, Warrior for Peace, a monthly podcast available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at wonderwomanwarriorforpeace.wordpress.com. Act one, the next scene. Speaking of, Andy was just talking about the caption. Meanwhile, in Washington, General Blankenship's, uh, sorry, uh, General Blankenship informs Steve and Marcia of Drangle's mission. Marcia. 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 <laughs> the music uh, that brings us into this uh, scene is the. which is also used on Laverne and Shirley, which uh, premiered in January of 76. So I'm going to say it was originally written for Wonder Woman, unless Charles Fox scored something else that he used it in. I don't think so. I mean, he did do Laverne and Shirley in Happy Days, and so I. it's more common than you think to for our, our composers to, to reuse a cue here and there. And that, yeah. you know, uh, it seems so out of place here, and so in place in, on, a, on a half hour sitcom. Mm-hmm. Agreed. But you get the idea of the sort of directive that was given to Charles Fox about how this is a sort of a, you know, this is light and campy and, and fun. We have to stop Triangle in that infernal airship, whatever it is. Well, let's see now. Left Germany for Argentina, up over the Bermuda area, and then on to the, the Navy Yard. I don't understand his reasoning. Nor I. No single Nazi plane can knock out all the ships that we have there. If the Nazis bomb the continental United States, it would be a great boost to their ego and a terrible blow to ours. Again, I am struck by how I am. My attention on the Blu-ray is drawn to the faces of the extras, the print on Marsha's dress. Um, and this is one of those places where I have never laughed out loud before. But the what the things that Marsha's doing uh, are just cracking me up. Oh, look at the time. Will that be all, Steve? I have a chiropodist appointment this afternoon. Sure, Marsha, go ahead. Thanks. Oh, Marsha. Yes? Uh, 
see you later tonight. Sure thing. Uh, one thing I like about this scene also is um, uh, you get to see, in hindsight, is 2020. Uh, once Blankenship tells Steve about this plane that's coming, and Steve goes over to the globe, again, another globe, to look at where it could possibly yeah. be, there's this shot of Stella Stevens. She sort of inwardly has this sort of, what the, how could this, if you don't know, that she's the mole, you think that she's just like, oh my goodness, how could this be happening? When in reality, you look back at it, you know, and it's like, it's her sort of saying, you know, what the hell? My plan is revealed already? I love that. An interesting thing, Steve has his hand on the globe and Marsha comes over and puts her finger in between his thumb and his forefinger. Yeah, she does. It's an interesting little power play that I've not noticed before. Where Steve then backs off as she put places her entire hand on America. So that's that's carrying over from that first globe that we saw. You know, in in the same way that uh, that we were talking about von Blasco and Nicholas, I think there's clearly something going on there with Marcia. Yeah, uh, where where she's if if she and Steve are not doing it, they. Uh, it's not because she's not doing everything she can to make it happen because you know, there could not be more sexual harassment going on. Yep. Oh uh, gosh. Yeah. You know, if, if she tried, I mean, it's just, it's so obvious and so unprofessional of her. <laughs> I, I, I think that a call to HR is, is definitely, in, you know, in the plans. And those days HR would have said, do more. Right. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, what are you coming to us for, chickadee? Uh, Most people realize that things are not shot on location and that this was actually done on a soundstage. But, Wait, you uh, mean that's not the Capitol building outside? I, that isn't. I, that is, <laughs> you are destroying me. That is not the Capitol building. It, you know, it's interesting because when they show, meanwhile in Washington, D.C., um, they show the Capitol building, and then when they cut to Steve's office, the Capitol building is off in the distance. <laughs> so are we are we meant to think that it's just an establishing shot of you know Washington D.C., or are we meant to think that somehow he's in the furthest wing <laughs> of the Capitol building, and and you know he's so far away from the seat of power? It's like looking at the Milky Way. Right, right. <laughs> We're in it, but we can see it. Right. And I think that the uh, I think that what we see in some of those scenes, because this is one of those examples of if you watch those HD versions that were up on iTunes and Amazon, I think this is one of those scenes where you see how small the office is, and that that only like two walls exist, the the, the two walls that you're seeing and so forth. And so it's likely just a piece of poster board with a photo of Washington, D.C. that they're looking at outside the window, uh, rather than what they do for major shows is that they will have like a Florida, Florida ceiling backdrop that can, that can roll, they can light it differently, etc. This, this I think was probably just like a literally a piece of poster board with a photo oh yeah there are some shots and when we get to the uh the episodes i'll, I'll post some uh, pictures from those widescreens where you can actually see uh where the facade ends of the office and behind it there are cables and there are light fixtures <laughs> and it's like oh my god um 
you ruined it for us, uh, Andy. Thank you for just ruining the magic. Yeah, thanks a lot. Absolutely. We're going to have to get that plane before it ever gets near the States. But you better be prepared to evacuate the Navy Yard on an hour's notice, just in case. Only if necessary. There should be no publicity. Which means it's up to me to bring that plane down quickly and quietly. Next scene, the caption reads shortly thereafter. Uh, this is a scene where, where Marcia is revealed as a spy. Uh, I'm sorry, as a spy, uh, a German spy. And um, uh, something you noted uh, before, Ray, that uh, FDR is smoking on almost every picture in this in this pilot. FDR clearly had a smoking habit. <laughs> And Marsha's... I don't think I don't think the smoking picture reappears, does it? Do they use a different one throughout the rest of the series, or is it always the smoking picture? They probably also licensed uh, only the one picture, and that that may be why. Yeah, way expensive, way expensive. But I like Marcia's uh, secret communication uh, device. You know, we, it's where I keep mine in the uh, the false uh, compartment of my stereo. <laughs> Again, the the Blu-ray, the texture of the wallpaper, the drapes, and the couch. I see the I see the knickknacks. I see the shoes. I see the dancing or the girl with the thing on her head uh, <laughs> carrying the bowl. Right. You know, you've got the, the the fruit bowl of the the glass goose. Right, right. Um, the, the the room feels very tangible. Yeah. Now, I think this is because you've been brainwashed by all these home uh, decoration <laughs> shows. My extreme Washington 1942 apartment makeover. <laughs> Right, right. I I think that that's what's going on here, Ray. Uh, Yeah, I I don't even watch TV anymore, really. In the script, I love this, when she makes the the communique, and you know she's not doing Morse code, real Morse code. I love that when they just show the actor go, and they're just, you know. But in the script, she lights up a Chesterfield cigarette. A Chesterfield regular. (laughs) Back at the secret Nazi base. Von Blasco, as he learns from Marcia's communication, that the plan has leaked. Something wrong, huh, Obus? I can't understand it, Nicholas. Drangle was not in the air over ten hours when the Americans knew of his mission. There is a leak here somewhere. One of the things I like about this is uh, uh, the dynamic of... Uh, again, I, I, I view this in comedy terms, right? So Van Blasco, he does the three uh, with his hand. It's the desk, it's the arm, it's the, the desk. Uh, and then, you know, uh, he stands up and uh, Gibson goes down. Gibson stands up, Van Blasco goes down. It's that seesaw thing. Good old status play. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then this is where the scene where he comes around the desk uh, behind uh, Gibson, puts his hands on his shoulders and says, you know, it could be anybody. <laughs> And you don't know, uh, for, to me, it looks like uh, he's trying to send a message to Henry Gibson that uh, I know who the leak is. When he takes his cigarette out of his pack, there's a Nazi symbol. They're Nazi brand cigarettes. <laughs> I would never have seen that. Cigarette? Yeah, yeah, Dunk. Keeps a pack. That's fantastic. Keeps a pack keeps it back that's not in the script you get two comic geniuses in kenneth mars and henry gibson that they they play off each other beautifully here and they can ad lib i'm sure there was tons of ad lib going back and forth i'm gonna try and nail him over the bermuda area in that so-called devil's triangle 
Since the year 1900, over 50 ships and 60 planes have disappeared in that area without explanation. The next scene at the airbase, we're still in Act One. Here's where Blankenship sees Steve off. It's a strange area, all right. As a matter of fact, there are many uncharted islands in the Triangle. Sort of uh, tropical paradise. You can save them for after the war, boy. <laughs> you say something really interesting here, uh, Ray, where you like John Randolph better than Richard Eastman. Eastham. I do, and I think it's in the way that their relationship is played. It feels, even though that General Blankenship is above uh, Major Trevor, they have a uh, chumminess. It's it's a warmer, almost a um, paternal buddy situation, whereas with Richard Eastham, there feels to be this clear divide that General Blankenship is my superior, and I am... Uh, I, I report to General Blankenship, where, whereas uh, here you get to see a different, a, a deeper relationship, and it, and because of that, a deeper portrayal of both characters. Uh, Lyle Wagner is able to play a different level with that, as is Richard Eastham. Whenever you've got a different actor, you've got different energy, right? So, mm-hmm. so Lyle Wagner is gonna he's gonna play a, a sort of different. Trevor, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Based off that. Yeah, based on what, what they're giving each other. I think he was also still finding uh, what level he needed to play in the show. Steve Trevor that's in the pilot is a much more heroic and less Lois Lane character than he would become in the series. Mm. And that's something that, that Lyle Wagner has talked about in some of his interviews, that uh, he became less effective as a masculine hero character mm-hmm. as the series went on. And yet later, of course, in this episode, he's tied up and drugged and, you know, so <laughs> forth. But he starts out very capable and and definitely, he's not on the macho side. He's kind of like Alan Alda macho. Alan Alda macho. That's I, interesting. Yeah, well, he's, he's very, uh, Ray hit it on the head with, he's got this paternal figure, who's like, now you be careful out there and, you know, get the job done, but you be careful. And he reacts to the paternal aspects as opposed to, you know, uh, I'll do my mission, sir. You know, he's not, he's not, uh, he's not super macho in the way that he, he portrays us. He's, he, he's also a more flawed and interesting character, I think, even through their dialogue, um, it, it, it seems that Steve in this pilot is really written to Lyle Wagner's strengths, um, which, which is the comedy after coming off the Carol Burnett show. He's just a more playful, fuller, uh, more well-rounded, um, deeper character that disappeared very fast uh, once they got into, once this became a series, whereas Steve just represented this hero archetype um, whereas in this, I, I, I understand him a little more, and I, I value him uh, more as a character and, and, and not so much as um, something to just help the story move along. I like both of the things that you said, uh, where uh, you said that it makes him a more flawed Trevor. He's lighter in his portrayal. And, and Andy, you said he's far less of a Lois Lane in this pilot than he becomes even in season one. And... Um, I have to agree with both of those things, and yet I like the more serious Steve Trevor 
that he becomes in season one, even though, yeah, he does. It's funny. I like the more serious where he doesn't, he's not playing, he's not playing funny. Uh, and it doesn't work in season two or three, but it works in season one when he's a serious Steve Trevor. Uh, for me, it just does. I see the potential for romantic development through his portrayal here. I, I mean, I can understand oh, yeah. what Diana sees in him. Um, and I, I feel like from this pilot that their relationship has room to grow. Uh, whereas once it became an episodic, it was more like a reset at the end of each episode, which was typical of TV at that time. Um, we, we just reset their relationship every time, and you know that there's not going to be, that romance is never going to be um, explored. Good luck, Steve. That's what I'm going to need. Good luck and a good plane. Do your best, boy. General, I can only do my best. End of Act One. Act Two opens up. Dogfight in the Bermuda Triangle. What do you guys think about this this whole scene? Well, <laughs> I think I think it's funny. It's so bizarre. It is very bizarre, and it's hard to keep track of what's going on <laughs> the way it was edited. Um, but it, but it works on a comedic comedic level. All you're focusing on is just what they're doing and, you know, the little Lucille Bluth wink that yeah. uh, <laughs> Triangle is doing. And um, I'm, I'm just, I, I become very distracted, but I get, I get the point of it. It's a dog fight. They're going to fight each other. Someone's going to end up in the, in the ocean and only sharks only eat Nazis, apparently. I tried to make sense of, of the, the dog fight itself. Uh, recently, because I was having an artist draw Steve Trevor's plane oh. for, an art, for an art commission, and I couldn't figure out <laughs> which plane to have him draw because they actually <laughs> use about six different footage <laughs> of six different <laughs> right. planes in this. Right. <laughs> and they're all just like, well, it's a single-wing plane, it's not a biplane, we'll just throw whatever, whatever dogfight footage we want to throw up there. As opposed to, say, just Grabbing a dogfight of two planes, you know, from stock footage, they grabbed 18 different planes <laughs> and intercut them. And then there's the whole weird extreme close-up, extreme close-up, oh, extreme yeah. close-up of Steve and Drangle. And this is, I think, the most bizarre... And if you if you want to talk campy, right? <laughs> this is this is the mo the the scene that doesn't belong in this movie the most. Right. The whole uh, the gun and how Eric Braden is sort of shooting behind him and he's trying to twist and or when he sees the shark he's trying to pull himself up higher into the sky. It's so bizarre and it really belongs in a different movie. Uh you know there's an old, there's a rumor that's been perpetuated for 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 years now that there is another version of this movie out there somewhere and was aired in different countries and it was a lot funnier and it was a lot more hard humor and utter BS. Yeah. I, I think it's BS, but, but here, what you said a moment ago, Andy is right. This scene belongs in a different, it belongs in that movie. It belongs in a more funnier slapstick, you know, uh, uh, film. I also want to say that it looks like this whole sequence was shot in 16 millimeter. It's just awful looking. 
and when you HD it, you can see that it's awful looking. Uh, the script does tell us that Steve's body lands on the beach and Drongo lands in the water. I don't think that's made clear at all in what we have, which is why I'm like, why why are sharks right. <laughs> going for Drongo, but they'll leave Steve alone and he can float all the way to the shores of Paradise Island? Uh, just right, yeah, right. Okay, I do love the I do love the uh, the Lucille Bluth wink. I, I <laughs> this is the funniest I've ever seen Eric Braden play. Uh, you know, I've always seen him play ruthless. He'll come back uh, for your favorite episode, Ray, uh, Skateboard Wiz. Uh, he'll come back in that episode. Oh, uh, uh, do you? I never made that connection. <laughs> yeah, uh, Act Two continues. I've never seen that before. Neither have I. Let's find out what it is. Diana discovers Steve. And uh, again, Ray, uh, you say the first thing that we hear is Diana's laughter. First thing we hear is Diana's laugh. Isn't that nice? For all intents and purposes, this is now... What do you think it is? I think it's called a parachute. The first time we see... But what's it doing here on Paradise Island? Linda Carter, Diana, running. I I, I think she's actually frolicking. That's a word uh, that I think is appropriate here. Sort of they're, they're... like running through a, a field of poppies. Uh, I, I think the word would be romping. <laughs> romping. It's a man. He's been hurt. The mysterious Rena. I, I think she disappears later on, or she turns into Hulk Rena. Yeah. He's almost dead, Rena. A man here on our island? Just help me get him out of this contraption. They're running on the beach. They find Steve Trevor. Help me lift him. Be careful. There's a bit of lip flapping going on here where Rena asks, you know, a man on Paradise Island? I've never seen a man in the flesh before. Who of us have? Who of us have? But in the script, it's none of us have. None of us have. And this is this has been a main point of contention between me and my husband for years. Why? Why do? Well, okay, good. Oh, oh, I want to get into that. I want to. <laughs> right, you're 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 listening to Doctor Phil, Doctor Bisson, and we're gonna get right back <laughs> into this. Uh, but I want to know why do you think they changed it from the script? None of us have to who of us have. I I still don't hear the who. I, I don't hear it. This is this is where Kevin and I disagree on this. He insists that it's a who. I hear none. So really, what do you guys hear? Well, just for the record, you're wrong, and your husband's right. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> it, 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 she says, "Who of us have?" But her lip. If you turn the volume down and and read her lips, she's saying, "None of us have." None of us have. We're both right then. Yeah. I just went to the subtitle track, which doesn't show up. So <laughs> that's that's not a help. Uh, the, <laughs> I did want to say, however, for a you know seventy or, or close to seventy minute movie, the star of the of the show doesn't show up until thirteen and a half minutes into it. Yeah. It's already almost one sixth over. And we we still have yet to see the star until until the scene, um, amazingly or or not, depending on how you want to view sexism at the time. The first time we see her, she's in the least amount of clothing that she will wear, and uh, you know is definitely kind of the most sex potty that she can be in the series. And this is her Raquel Welch in Ten Thousand BC moment. Um, you know, appearing first in kind of 
diaphana swimwear and uh, ballet slippers. Pretty much all of them are sort of dressed in this sort of, uh, I mean, you have Stanley Ralph Ross writing this thing. Where does he go? He looks at the comics, right? Whenever they went to Paradise Island, they were all sort of dressed like that, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, at least he was sort of keeping it real in one respect to the comics. They're on the cliff doing archery. Right. Where did you find him? Run ahead to the hospital and let them know we're coming. Is that what they're doing? Did <laughs> I miss that? <laughs> oh, you, they are. Yeah, the other the other Amazons are. Uh, they're just getting sun. They're sunning. They're they're well by by doing archery in the bright sunlight, they're able to get all the areas, <laughs> uh, and so that their tan is is nice and even. I just wanted to mention the floppy leg dummy that is or was Steve Trevor. <laughs> legs, right? But yeah, and I'm, she. Well, look, like, from a distance, he has no knees. Uh, it it works. What's amazing <laughs> is that that both times she has to pick up or put down Steve, it is clearly Lyle Wagner that she is picking up or putting down, and so my oh those shots I've put in the same category as the 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 firecrackers in the in the bracelets. Right, those shots are fantastic practical effects. Correct, correct. Because I I love those because it shows that you know even though my guess is they probably had him on some kind of teeter totter. Oh yeah, that was uh, that was off screen, and so as she lifts it. But the way they framed it, it is so tight in there. It's so real. There's probably only two spots of coverage where he is actually touching the teeter-totter, and the rest of it is her. So she is shouldering probably more weight than she had ever shouldered in her life by picking him up. Yeah. And uh, and, and it is so real. And then they cut to the floppy leg dummy as she runs. Which didn't bother me when I was originally watching it as a kid, because I had just seen that great shot of her picking up Lyle Wagner. Right. I also wanted to point out that that when they show the shot of Paradise Island, of course we know that that's, well, we think it's a matte painting. It's actually a matte photograph. And I discovered this when I was working on Wonder Woman 77 meets the Bionic Woman because I wanted to get the artist reference of what Paradise Island looks like. And so I did the best screen captures I could at that point. And basically, it's there is no effort made at, at hiding. Basically, they took an X-Acto knife and cut part of the cityscape out and stuck it on top of a, of a bunch of, of greenery and then stuck some mountains in the back. There's like... It's it's one of the worst matte shots I think I've seen on television for for quite a long time when you stop and look at it. And yet And yet it looks completely, you know, to my like you a 6-year-old mind. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. It's simplistic, but it does work. According to his papers, his name is Steve Trevor and he's attached to the Air Corps Intelligence Division of the United States. So we come now to the introduction of the Queen. There's no mention of Queen Hippolyta. It is simply the Queen, and that's how this character will be referenced uh, throughout the whole series. Uh, but here is our first Queen, the late, great Cloris Leachman, mm. um, who uh, was just stellar in, in every capacity. And uh, she's here with uh, Fanny Flagg, who's playing the Doctor. And uh, they're distraught because, hello, 
a man has arrived on Paradise Island. It had to happen eventually. But Paradise Island is still secret, Your Majesty. The man is unconscious. His eyes are bandaged. Even if he should wake up, he wouldn't know where he was. This location has always been perfect for us. In a thousand years, no one has ever discovered us. Ray, again with the Blu-ray revealing stuff to you that you had not seen. The details in her her crown, you can see the moon, you can see um, just that actual thought was put into these things, uh, we have Diana and Artemis represented in the with the moon in the center. Yeah, I, I'm able to appreciate the artistry of the costume designer on a on a on a different level now. Yeah, uh, and you say the peacock the colors. The peacock colors. I love garb. that. Yeah, I love suggesting that. Hera. <laughs> I love that. She's playing her like a peacock. Right, it's, right. It's just it's very, really. She's very peacocky. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And doing the thing with her hairpiece when she adjusts her <laughs> crown, it moves her whole hairpiece. <laughs> I mean, you knew you knew that Cloris Leachman had to have been like off camera rehearsing this scene and she's like oh god this is moving well i'm just gonna move the whole thing (laughs) i'm just gonna have fun with it mother oh your highness doctor where did you find the man daughter on the beach near the cave will he be all right yes in time but will we be all right the incense smoke in her face that she <laughs> brushes away. It's such a lesson in comedic acting here. Absolutely. And one of the things uh, that we've been touching on and will continue to do uh, is that uh, none of this comedy is in the script. I mean, there is mm-hmm. comedy in the script. But again, Cloris Leachman just doing her uh, doing her shtick and using yeah. everything to her advantage. The the veil, the the smoke. All of this stuff, um, the hairpiece. She just dominates anytime she's on screen and is just a, f- a delight to watch. About this man. There's nothing to discuss. Oh, Mother, how can you think that way? <laughs> I named this island Paradise for an excellent reason. There are no men on it. Thus, it is free of their wars, their greed, their hostilities, their barbaric masculine behavior thousands of years have passed perhaps men are now different perhaps they've come to think as much of peace as we do we shall soon see could i serve as his nurse linda's energy in this is so different from from the comedy actors Mm -hmm. that that it is what i think uh endeared me to her immediately and I think what really makes, especially the season one episode, so great, uh, because her energy, and at the time it was partially naivete, where you know she just didn't know to act right. differently, and she is playing it so straight and so sincere that. Uh, you know, it's it's astonishing actually to watch how sincere she is. Yeah. When almost everybody else is chewing the scenery, and not to not be affected by these 
legends chewing the scenery, like maintaining that straight man. Right. It, it's a beautiful polarity that I really think allowed Linda to shine in this episode. That energy you're talking about is just so evident every time she's on screen because everybody else is is crazy around her. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Crazy right. is right. Yeah. But that polarity really sets off that balance that is allowing you to feel settled with uh, with this very um, warm, open being. Yes. I've heard her talk about uh, these scenes with Cloris Leachman, and you know she was worried about uh, uh, walking into the sandbags on the floor. Uh, because she didn't know where her mark was or getting the light. And she, you know, so she was constantly thinking about the technicality of, of the role of the, of the set of the scene, uh, that, uh, maybe it helped her like not be affected by whatever Leachman was doing or Fanny flag or, or, you know, red buttons. I also have to say, and looking at this scene, whenever they, they do the close-ups, Linda is radiant. She is. Yes. I don't think she ever looked more beautiful than oh she was Oh my gosh. Just glowing, glowing. Um, there's something that you say here, uh, Ray, in your notes about Cloris Leachman says, you're too young to remember when we were slaves, slaves in, in Rome and Greece. Greece. And you ask, so is Diana, was Diana be- born before Paradise Island? And I thought that right. was a great question. And um, as geeks are, we love the minutia of, of TV shows. So I've always been intrigued about uh, uh, the little, the, the, these tiny details. And very quickly, Leech, the Queen says in this pilot that Paradise Island has been the perfect location for the Amazons in a thousand years. Nobody mm-hmm. has ever discovered them. Mm. Now that puts their arrival mm-hmm. on Paradise Island at 942 CE. Then, in Fausta, Diana adds 1600 years to that number when she says that Amazons have lived on Paradise Island for 26 centuries. Now that puts their <laughs> arrival on Paradise Island at 658 BCE. <laughs> then, in Wonder Woman in Hollywood, Drusilla says that it is the bimillennial of the of their arrival on Paradise Island, which puts it at 2,000 years since they arrived. And then, and then in Return of Wonder Woman, well, <laughs> she's 2,526 years old. Exactly, right. exactly. So Drusilla puts their arrival at 58 BCE, and then you're right. Uh, from 1977 back 2526. Uh, years that puts her birth at 549 BCE. Now that see that works for me because the retconning in season one about their arrival, it's done now there three times. But what works for me as a fan, I subscribe to the date Diana gives in Fausta and the age that she gives in return, which would mean that they arrived on Paradise Island in 658 BCE, and then Diana was born 109 years later. <laughs> that works for me. And your mileage may vary, but that's what geeks do. And they played fast and loose with that. And I just thought it was funny. Let me uh, answer a part of that, which is to say that as a writer and as someone who's worked in all kinds of franchises, I've worked in Star Wars and Star Trek and X-Files. And, you know, I've worked in all these franchises. And one of the things that I like to do best is look at exactly these types of questions and say, 
What hasn't been answered? What do the fans have questions about? And how can I answer them? You're a fans writer. So, right, right, right. And that's what makes my work so popular with the fans is because they're like, I've always wondered about that. Well, yeah, exactly. That's why I wrote it. Now pay up. Um, you know, I'm not just writing something I wanted. I'm writing something that you wanted as well. So I did have an answer to when the Queen says it's been a thousand years since anyone you know has found us. It's, yeah, nobody's found them. It, it always becomes a question of what specifically was said and then you go from that into, okay, what wiggle room do I have now that I know what the specifics are? So what she says is, it's been a thousand years since anybody's discovered us or found us or whatever it is. Well, yeah, so that means somebody, you, you reverse engineer that and you go, somebody found them a thousand years ago. That doesn't mean Paradise Island was established a thousand years ago. It means somebody found them a thousand years ago. In that exchange, you have to listen to what Cloris Leachman says right before that, right. is that this location mm -hmm. has been perfect for us in a thousand years. We've No one's ever discovered us. To me... That says that the location uh, has been perfect because no one's been able to find them on Paradise Island. They're in the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you can say that a thousand years ago, somebody found them. And so they erected the things that make the Bermuda Triangle the Bermuda Triangle post that. And that, that was what created the, you know, what makes Paradise Island invisible to, to humanity. Right. And, you know, I mean, it's like you can take all those things, but the point is that you, you take the question marks and you make them work for you as a writer. And I will say that, that had I gotten to write more Wonder Woman 77, that was an element that I was going to deal with. And it had to do with another episode down the road from the second or third season where a certain character says that they have encountered Wonder Woman in the past. Oh God. Yeah. When you get into the later seasons, man, she was, she was Wonder Woman. She was in the 1800s and, you know, meeting Napoleon and all that. I mean, you know, I love this about old TV that there was no, <laughs> no honoring of a timeline whatsoever. It was just whatever they needed. Well, sure. The comics did it too, though. The comics absolutely yeah. did yeah. it constantly. Yeah. But I mean, that was comics bread and butter. I mean, the obvious way to do it is to write a story in which, you know, she discovers a portal, a time portal or whatever, and that's how she meets all these people, and it doesn't disrupt her origin, right? So... Um, I mean, I get Andy's right. A fantasy writer that deals with fantastic stuff, uh, I love that you look for the reasons. And if you don't find one, Andy, you invent it, don't you? Yeah, it's a tremendous opportunity. Yeah, it's it becomes something where you say, okay, I need to answer this question and this question and this question. <laughs> Is there a logical way? Is there a fantastical way? Is there a magical way? You know, depending on what franchise you're working in, you can kind of do all those things. In Wonder Woman, Bionic Woman, I had to have a reason and a way for the dome that keeps Paradise Island invisible from everybody, which we know from the comics, but had never technically been established in the TV show. Um, 
but I had to I had to come up with a reason for that to to work and a reason for it to malfunction and a reason for them to have to repair it and you know so forth. So I basically kind of worked from okay, I've got point A and point Q and point H. How do I connect the letters between each of those in a way that works? And with Wonder Woman, because it incorporates magic in it and it incorporates gods and magical elements and because it incorporates uh, fantastic science in it, um, I was able to kind of utilize those elements and so forth. If it's the real world, well, then we have to go, well, shoot, how did this happen? And it's why we still have mysteries in the world, you know, the magic right. bullet with JFK, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. Look, I like the look, though, I think the best one of the best creative decisions that you ever made was uh, putting an agent uh, Paul in that comic book. <laughs> I thought that was just a stroke of genius. Yeah, it's it's a shame that he was gonna die in the next series. Right. Really horrible things <laughs> thrown down a well, and there was gonna be skin lotion involved. <laughs> Wonder Woman will continue in a moment. Wonder Woman is one of the greatest, most long-lived and visibly recognizable icons of female empowerment the world has ever known. That's a crushing weight of expectation to place on someone's shoulders. And Princess Diana of the Amazons has faced scathing criticism for her entire existence as a result. I'm Diablo Frank, and I've been a fan of the Amazing Amazon for my entire life. But she didn't become one of my absolute favorite superheroes until the 1990s. That doesn't seem all that long ago to me, but every year I meet more adults who are otherwise preoccupied getting born around them, so I guess it's been a spell. I try to be a good feminist and all-around decent guy, but I'm still a human being chock full of character flaws quirks, and hang-ups that make me less than anyone's ideal. Despite being an admirable heroine fighting for her rights in her satin tights, Wonder Woman is as human as Adam, and they have the same basic origin. But boy, did that guy make a mess of things. Shouldn't we extend someone with Wonder Woman's track record the same courtesy and empathy we can and should offer to the rest of the world? To be truthful, I'm not a typical fan of the Paradise Island set. I'm not big on mythology, and I'm highly critical of the most popular Themyscirin stories. I like it when Wonder Woman loses her powers and hangs out with a tiny blind Asian martial arts master named Ai Ching, or when she works at Taco Bell and helps collect child support for a co-worker from a deadbeat mafioso dad, or when she rides around on kangaroo ponies from outer space and is a little too into bondage and spanking for the squares. Wonder Woman is great, but I really miss Diana Prince, the reminder that the heroine feels and fails and bleeds like the rest of us. That's why I call my podcast about her Diana Prince Wonder Woman, and the music playing in the background is from the off-model Kathy Lee Crosby TV movie from 1974, because I like to remember there's a woman behind all that wonder, and I'd like to talk about her if you care to listen on iTunes, Shout Engine, and the Internet Archive. What's not in the film, this is from the script, Steve is hooked up to an intravenous tube. The nurse has a stethoscope around her neck, and Diana asks, get this, she asks if they have done a brain wave scan. And it's like, oh my God, there was opportunity to, to bring some technology onto Paradise Island. I mean, purple healing ray, all kinds of stuff. You know, when everybody ever says to me, oh, well, you know, it's an ancient island. They can't really have technology, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, uh, Wakanda? The doctor also talks about uh, wanting to do a mind wipe. There's a scene with, with her and the queen where the doctor explains what she has learned about Steve Trevor, that there's a war going on uh, with a group called the Axis, um, they're drinking a pitcher, pitcher of nectar 
as they talk about all this. And the doctor says, "Wow, uh, we can delete everything in his mind since he arrived here with the post-hypnotic su- suggestion. Then we deliver him back to his world and no one will be the wiser. And that's that's the plan that they set out. Yeah. If, if, why, why this stuff didn't make it into the, you know, who knows? Act two continues. We now switch back to the general and Marcia who give a toast to an empty chair because they think Steve Trevor's died. To find words at a time like this. Steve wouldn't have wanted a long eulogy. Just a drink in his honor. That's about it. You're right. Out comes the bottle and out comes the cups and they they drink up to an empty chair. And I like, uh, again, not in the script is the sort of Auntie Mame type lighting. Steve Trevor. Sort of the spotlight on Steve Trevor's chair. Genuine American hero. In that scene, by the way, because it opens on a newspaper headline of Major Steve Trevor dies in crash, you can actually read the newspaper story, which has nothing to do with Steve Trevor. But they show this headline as if the general and Marcia are are looking at it, and yet... When we see them, there's no newspaper on the the table. Right. Completely missing. They're just talking to the empty chair. I thought that was was an odd prop choice. There's nothing deader than yesterday's news. Right. (laughs) Hey, do you guys know what Marcia is wearing in her hair at that point? Do you know what that's called? Um, Snood. uh, Pillowcase? Ah, Ray got it. Go ahead, Ray. It's a snood. It is a snood. uh, I'm sorry. What's a snood? A pillowcase. (laughs) It's a pillowcase. (laughs) Well, thank you. I knew it. It's a pillowcase for yeah, him. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a hair condom, basically. Oh. Andy, why do you always go five steps? <laughs> the way I learned what a snood was, was not because I'm so much old that, that, I, uh, that I know this stuff in my creaky old bones. Uh, it's because in an episode of Batman, Batman the original series with Adam West and Burt Ward, and I believe it was even an episode written by Stanley Ralph Ross. Mm-hmm. So here's your your seven degrees of Kevin Bacon snoo. Okay. Robin actually makes an exclamation because holy collection of priceless Etruscan snoods. That's right, yeah. That was how I learned what a snood was. Well, you know, you weren't you weren't supposed to reveal that right now, Andy. We're giving away a couple of snoods at the end of the podcast. So. <laughs> oh darn! Um, <clears throat> and they come from Ray's personal collection, and uh, they're former pillowcases, right? They're former <laughs> beautiful flower print and beautiful uh, HD. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so um, Cloris Leachman, the Queen, reluctantly gives her permission for Diana to observe and be sort of nurse to Steve Trevor. So now, how is he? I just gave him a potion of special serum. We cut to the scene where Fanny Flag, Diana, they're going to figure out uh, uh, what's up with, with Steve Trevor. What is your name? Stephen Leonard Trevor, Major, United States Air Corps. Why were you flying over this island? Answer me. I was trying to intercept a Nazi plane on its way to bomb the U.S., What are Nazis in the U.S.? Nazis are a group of evil men out to rule the world, kill anyone that doesn't agree with them, like the United States of America. What would happen if the Nazis should defeat you? Dictatorship. 
the end of freedom for mankind. I've got to get back. I've got to try. I love the fact there are Amazons that are just standing there in the background. We got Amazon guards. One even is holding a staff in her I hand. know. Wow. That's, I love that stuff. I think that's great. Anyway, Ray says, everything is satiny. And I love it. Did, <laughs> did I write that? Oh, absolutely. I don't. I did write that. I don't. Listen, see, this is the problem with me making notes. <laughs> I don't remember. That's why I read them back that's to you why, during the show. And that's why you make me it's, do It's so amazing <laughs> because you don't remember saying, Steve, blindfolded, I'm into I'm, it. No, no I, I remember that. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Steve's v- very hot in this episode. Diana is definitely in a satin dress. Yeah, everything is satiny. Steve's head is on a satin pillow. His, mm. his chest hair is satiny. Uh, it's just... The, the sweat glistening off of him is satiny. Right, right. I think he actually has some glitter on his on his forehead, but it could be a sweat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, everything in this scene is is full of sap. I love the textures on Paradise Island. Yeah, and and on t- and yeah, on all a- natural <laughs> environment, but drape yourself in satin. Right. And on a bed on a bed of satin, uh, Steve reveals Nazis are a group of evil men out to rule the world, who kill anyone that doesn't agree with them, like the United States of America. And Ray, you say ha. Just wait. You say, <laughs> go ha, ahead, read my notes. Just wait 80 years. <laughs> How did we go from this lesson to the normalization of Nazism in the American political party? That's my question. <laughs> Please. That is my question. I am in. researching that right now. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, I am. I, I want to know how, how we got to this. Point. I know you are. I'm. Yeah. I'm. I want to hear it. I want to hear all of what you find uh, out because well, I know it, you'll be diligent. <laughs> I know you'll be diligent. I'm actually writing a new piece for Uncle Toots that's based on all of this. Oh, uh, very good. Yes, very good. It's okay. Getting a little more complex, but we're gonna. See. I want to explore how, how does how does authoritarianism take hold? What what are the processes? that we need to go through as a civilization in order to normalize this type of thing and this type of person um, to give them power. This scene ends with all three of them being uh, sort of perplexed and and unsettled uh, by this information. They all leave, and then Diana creeps back in. She creeps back in. The creeper, just to be with him. Now, in the script... She doesn't leave at all. And that's the end of Act 2. Act 3 opens up. Marcia informs Von Blasco of Drangle's failure. Again, these short, funny scenes with Gibson and Mars back at the uh, Nazi headquarters. Of us? Speak. Drangle has failed. He and the XV-12 have gone down somewhere off Bermuda. In the Devil's Triangle. How? No one knows. An allied pilot. The devil. <laughs> Maybe it was the devil. So. <laughs> How stupid that a Nazi general would believe that the devil had something to do with it. Well, I mean, weren't they? I mean, is that, you know, they were in all that uh, mysticism? Who knows, right? They were. They Trying were. to get the Ark, all that stuff. I watched Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the History Channel. Right. I watched the History Channel. See how I'll just splice that in. 
Um, Kenneth Mars is sitting very comfortably in a smoking jacket. He's reading time with Hitler, uh, right on the cover there. Um, <laughs> reading time, <laughs> reading time magazine, which, uh, I might add is not in the script. That is totally just in the film. It is the time magazine cover from April 14th, 1941, in which Hitler was listed as man of the year. Yeah. Interesting. It's, it's a very specific choice on their part to show a, uh, and remember that this is shortly after Watergate and shortly after a lot of political scandal in the U.S., so to show this, you know, well-respected magazine with Hitler on the cover as person of the year, was I, I think that was a very clear statement that they were making, uh, in addition to the fact that it is likely, if you were going to look at any U.S. magazine, that specific magazine would be the one. Act three continues, the queen forbids Diana, is what I call it. Uh, in the queen's uh, chambers, a uh, dais, is that right, again? Right, yeah. See, all right. Well, the dais is more kind of what she stands on out during the, the Olympics. This would be uh, more like a lanai. Uh, rather than a dais, because it is. Oh damn it! It is. Damn it! I've been calling it a dais. It is. Uh, well, I was letting you too. It it is outdoors. Well, you, well, you told me to. <laughs> You're letting me. You led me right down to a a, a wrong word lane. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it is. It is outdoors. It is an it is an outdoor garden, and uh, which is I, I gotta say, having a mom that that played the harp uh, that, that that is it's horrible to have your harp outdoors even in paradise it's just <laughs> it's very bad for the wait, strings wait what <laughs> are you being well, funny no no i'm being serious the queen has her harp out outdoors on her lanai and she plays it and that's horrible that's a, it's a horrible thing to do you do not you might say she's wearing her harp on her chest as she plays well, it or her sleeve you know but uh but yeah yeah you never want to see keep... what i did there harp on harp on her uh, yeah yeah so so there's your your tip that if you have a harp do not put it in your outdoor paradisical garden oh hey guys i'm sorry i have to um go for a second my harp is in my paradisical garden, <laughs> and I need to go bring it inside. Okay, we'll see you in a few. Okay. <laughs> uh, when I was in grade school, I was allowed to take, you were allowed to, when you took an instrument, you were allowed to take it home and practice over the weekend. Of course, I took, uh, was interested in upright bass. So, thank God I lived just a few blocks from the school, but I learned how to transport a bass. You hook it, you hook your foot under the bottom of it, and you it becomes part of your body as you walk. That's a little tidbit for me about how I, in grade school, played an instrument that was taller than I was. Um, <clears throat> all right, back to the show. <laughs> we are stronger, wiser, and more advanced than all those people in their jungles out there. Our civilization is perfection. No. There's something missing, Mother. When I look at Steve Trevor... I feel things, things I've never known before. There are some things that are better not known. Young Amazon minds are best occupied with athletic discipline and higher learning. We now know why he was in the area. 
That man must be returned to his own country. But why, Mother? For his safety. And ours. One of our young Amazon girls will escort him to his country and then return to Paradise Island. But all the girls will want that task. I know. To forestall any ill feeling, I have planned a tournament of athletic games by which I alone shall determine the strongest, nimblest, and most likely aspirant for the assignment. A tournament? That's a wonderful idea, Mother. I look forward to participating in the games myself. You? Never. But, Mother! I, I cannot risk my only begotten child, our princess, on a mission in behalf of the life of a, a savage. Is that your final decision? Yes, it is. There's a scene where the queen announces the tournament to the Amazons, the Amazon people. And she says, one of you will be chosen to escort him home. Only the very oldest here know what it's like in the world of men, but you are too old to survive such a trip. <laughs> so it must be a young Amazon. I wonder why that didn't make it into the movie. <laughs> yeah. So it must be a young Amazon, a loyal Amazon, who can take him back to his country, then return to Paradise Island. Are there any volunteers? Most of the girls raise their hands. So she continues, I knew you would feel that way. Because there are so many eager to serve your queen, I have planned a tournament to determine the strongest, nimblest, and most likely Amazon for the assignment. We'll assemble at dawn. Wow. In keeping with the tradition of our games, all contestants will wear masks. May the best maiden win. Wow, you don't get that in the uh, movie version. It's sort of, you get a sort of condensed version that happens as she's talking to Diana. Yep. I like that. I wish they would have kept that other one in there. Although I do like the moment where uh, she's talking to Diana and she calls her immortal. And if mm -hmm. she should ever leave, she could revert to a human being. H here, we are getting some mythology hinted at here that is never again, again addressed once this pilot is done. Um, mm -hmm. And I love that. I love, I, I love it and I'm sad that, that we lose it because... Uh, Diana goes home quite often in season one. Well, you know, a couple of she times. Does. Uh, and there's no consequence about leaving, uh, the island. And, uh, but I love it here. It's like, you could, you might revert to being a human being. You are immortal. In the script, it says you would lose your immortality, but not your youthful beauty, your strength and your cunning, just your endless life. You would revert to a human being. I think that that absolutely is talked about, or or is addressed later, because she, it immortal doesn't just mean uh, long lived; it also means you can't die. And we certainly see through every episode that she, you know, is her life is threatened, and she has concern over that because she knows she can die now. It's not explicitly stated. It's not like, well, since I left Paradise Island, I guess this Nazi who's holding a gun to me can shoot me and kill me. But she is concerned about the fact that she could die now, whereas before, I don't think she would have been. Um, I would have to, you would have to point those instances out to me, because I don't know where she is ever concerned about her own... Uh immortality or, or mortality we will we will have to talk about that okay but right now we go to the contest and andy there's something that you had uh, mentioned about 
one of the uh, the factors of, of watching this in widescreen. I think what you're getting at is that we actually find out that there's a tiny bit of diversity on Paradise Island. Was that, <laughs> yes, that what you were exactly. dis- discussing? So <laughs> exactly. There, there is one African-American or African-Amazon, or I'm not sure what you would call her, but there is one black Amazon uh, in the crowd. Yeah. She is unfortunately the only one and um but she is there and you can see her in the widescreen versions more easily otherwise there's only one shot of her as the amazons run forward right um and she's in that shot but otherwise she's completely missing from every other shot unless you watch the widescreen version and then she's in a couple of those shots um, it's sad, and I, I've never found out why, uh, from any of the people involved, I've never found out why there were not Amazons of color. And so when I was, again, when I was writing the Wonder Woman 77 Bionic Woman comic, I made certain that I put in lots of Amazons of color and Amazons of different body sizes and shapes and different outfits and things like that, uh, because it, it was important to me to show that the Amazons were not just as Aryan as the Germans were. What do we think about this uh, very long and involved, uh, one of the biggest set pieces of this uh, movie, uh, the contest, uh, the, the tournament? Um, I love it. I, I think they did a really did good too. job. I love the music. I love the, the intercutting of the different scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think... Uh, I, I love when I love when the the I love when they're when they're when they're true and they at least try to. Uh, it's one of the problems I had with the with the uh, Gal Gadot uh, Wonder Woman movie is that they did not have uh, a tournament, a champion a right, contest. Right. I was so upset about that. Uh, and here, it's I think it's done beautifully. I agree. It is, and it was, uh, by the way, it was shot at the Arboretum in Los Angeles. It's actually in Arcadia, California, on Baldwin Avenue, um, but it's called the Arboretum of Los Angeles County. Uh, It's across from the Santa Anita Racetrack. It's open to the public. You can go visit it now. It looks very similar to what it did then. Drove by it a lot. Although the trees are taller and so forth. But they have they have peacocks, which is why you see peacocks every now and then in the Paradise Island scenes. The big fountain is there. There's waterfalls and flowers and a lagoon. The lagoon was also used for Fantasy Island. But uh, in these scenes, especially in the in the HD versions uh, where you're seeing the widescreen shots, and I would imagine, although I haven't checked in the Blu-ray versions. There are times at which you can you can clearly see far in the background things that are less Amazonian than one would think. You know, there's there's concrete stairways and and guardrail handrails and and uh, a couple times you see like light reflectors and yeah, I think uh, there's a car in one of them. Yeah, there's the there's there's shots. like <laughs> one of the uh, one of the trucks, the catering trucks or something. Walmart is, is there. You know, it's you can you can recognize what it is, but they used the arboretum a lot whenever it came to Paradise Island. Did they use it for Screaming Javelin? Was that the same location? I'm not sure. I'd have to look that up. Sorry, off the top of my head, I don't know.
We are at 4.42 p.m. Let's pause then. Yeah, let's give it a pause and we'll, we'll pick it up uh, as we go into. And, and it's, I think it's a good place to pick it up talking about the tournament because it's an easy segue into now a major shift in the story, right? We're leaving Paradise Island behind. Now we're coming to America. It's like a whole new story. So. We, we, we do still have other tournament stuff to discuss. We do. We uh, do. Uh, uh, we absolutely do. I'm looking at tons of raised notes, and I want to get into this costuming and the belt and uh, Hulk Rena. I think it'll be fun. Hulk Rena. I think she, I think, because that's not Rena, but it does look like Rena, only she's not. hulked out. She's got a different nose. I was just examining. Uh, and she's taller and bulkier. She's She's she got is. some yeah. muscle. Yeah, in the script, in the script, she's Rena, but in here, it's a different actor. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you something right now. Here's what I think. I think they couldn't get the same actor. Yeah. So they got someone to be her, but they just don't yeah. call her that. Some of the music heard in this podcast is from the sensational La La Land Records limited edition 3CD Wonder Woman TV soundtrack produced by Neil S. Bulk. You can order yours at lalalandrecords.com. Our show notes for this edition can be found on our website at satintights.com. You'll find links to all of our socials there too, including our new Patreon. You can email us at satintightspodcast at gmail.com. And you can leave us a voicemail message at 508-68-SATIN or 508-687-2846. A voicemail. Huh. Be advised that we may use your message on a future podcast. Once again, thanks to our special guest, Andy Mangles. For Paul K. Bisson, I'm Ray Caspio. Stay tuned for part three coming soon. Bye. Last time on Saturday. <laughs> I'm going to be very serious. Last time. That's not good. Last time on Satin Tights, a Wonder Woman podcast. Last time. Last time. Sat- satin Tights, a Wonder Woman podcast. Last, last, last time on Satin Tights. A Wonder Woman. I I still don't hear the who. Who of us have? I I don't hear it. Who of us have? This is where Kevin and I disagree on this. Who of us have? He insists that it's a who. Who of us have? I hear none. Who of us have? So, what do you guys hear? (laughs)